carbon is the basic building blocks of life. It's not actually a negative thing. <laughs> Very rarely in a natural system is something objectively negative or positive. It plays its role. And so actually storing carbon and having carbon in your soil is incredibly important. And of course, huge amounts of carbon have been lost from the soil. So there's huge potential to store carbon in the soil. However, I will say that we will get, I believe, ourselves in trouble if we turn farming into a carbon storing exercise. Because I believe that we can store carbon in the soil and it's really important. It's really important for farming. It's really important for the environment in the future. But I'm worried if we go down the route of, of only farming to store carbon, we lose the holistic understanding of nature and we end up back in a reductionist system where we're only thinking about carbon storage. To thrive, we have to consider everything and we have to uh, understand the ecosystem in its entirety. You're listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast with me, Dan Burgess. The concept of the Spaceship Earth is simple. We live on a life-giving rock called Earth hurtling through space. Like a spaceship, we have a finite amount of supplies with an intelligent operating system which keeps everything we need replenished as long as we all respect it and use wisely. So an understanding of how this system works, along with deep cooperation between humans and all life, is essential to keep us thriving and the spaceship flying. In this podcast, I'm in conversation with humans involved in regenerating life, shifting consciousness and reimagining how we can live more beautifully and peacefully. I talk with artists, activists, writers, designers, adventurers, healers, entrepreneurs, creative mavericks, and more. Their stories invite us to participate in the co-creation of a more beautiful, life-sustaining world in service to life, becoming crew on Spaceship Earth. Hello, this is Dan. Thanks for tuning in, uh, wherever you are on Spaceship Earth. Welcome to the podcast. Um, so I've been struggling a little bit, uh, to be honest, with with overwhelm uh, and a feeling of burnout of late. And so uh, it's been a while since the last episode. And to be honest, the last few months have um, taken their toll. There's been a lot of change and shift going on uh, with my family at home Um keeping projects alive and then when I look up at the world from a I guess a mainstream news consensus reality perspective I I feel confused to be honest I feel a bit lost and sometimes contorted with 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 despair um and I know that time away and offline and generally connecting back with the rhythm of life, you know, the real life, the more than human cycles and patterns of this earth is what is needed. Um, but I've noticed here in the UK of recent, this urge for speed, sort of filling up life with distraction and almost it feels like an avoidance of space and time to tune in to what is going on in ourselves and around us. I'm wondering how we can meet the urgent call of these times 
without the space, encouragement and support to connect more deeply with our own responses, our own feelings, our own signals uh, from these extraordinary times. And I was walking this morning with my friend Zoe and we were talking about how we both were feeling this kind of incessant sort of uh, pull, this busyness needed just to function, you know, the things that are required just to keep a family healthy, secure, afloat, to be on top of your own work, whatever that is. But then all the noise and distraction that seems to fill any other space. Um, And she was sharing something she'd read some years ago about this kind of very sort of Western idea that to not be busy, that this idea that you make time to contemplate and to ponder is, is almost seen as laziness. Whereas there is an Eastern or was an Eastern idea, and maybe there still is, that there is an importance in not filling all your time with outside of work and outside of with you know reading and watching media and entertainment and distraction that that pondering that reflection that contemplation and creating regular time to just be is critical to tune into your own inner self to understand what is going on inside of you but also around you like what is going on around you and this is essential for this connected human wellness and so Again, it sort of got me thinking, like, what is going on in these times that it seems to me, at least, that everything, every space is filled, is filled with media and noise. Is it, is it, what is it? Is it lazy? Is it a fear of silence? What is it to not create space, but just to fill it? But there's something that's coming up very strong at the moment for me about the need for space, for slowness. And being able to tune in to what is actually going on. What are our bodies saying? What are our souls saying? Are we really listening to our loved ones? Are we tuned in to how our families are? How are our children really feeling? How are our friends really doing? What are our communities calling for? How can we actually notice the crucial feedback from the more than human world in these times? When we're filling everything, when we are busy and running from one thing to another, when we create no space to actually sense what is happening, how can we respond with the kind of energy and possibility, the courage uh, in the face of these complexities if we're burning out or we're numbing ourselves and Um, dampening our intuition our senses and our feeling capacities you know right now as I look out the window you know the autumn shift has begun you know leaves are falling there's this kind of giving way in the branches in the trees and the plants this letting go process has has begun there's a it's a dying vibe but not in a kind of somber sad way but a kind of beautiful acceptance a letting go, this kind of beginning of this this composting journey, a journey of renewal and new life. And that's, I think, how I feel. I think I sort of feel like I need to compost myself. I feel like I need to let go, you know, of the sort of intensity and confusion and mayhem of the last 18 months, you know, just to s- slow down and not to feel this drag, this productivity pressure. 
time, ideas, actions, all things that when I look to the more than human world, it doesn't feel like there's anything out there that's trying to sell itself right now. There's definitely a vibe of gifting, of generosity. I mean, there's still masses of fruit in the hedgerows and on the fruit trees and the leaves are shedding and giving themselves to the land and the soils. And there are all kinds of interesting beings and birds and creatures that are storing and harvesting. But no one seems exhausted or burnt out, more just intentional and grateful anyway that was a bit of a ramble uh in this episode i'm sharing a conversation recorded a few months back with the wonderful will rolf from two fields zacross now will and his brother harry are regenerative farmers they're focused on reconnecting their craft of olive farming with nature and the wider community the birth of the Two Fields project based in Zakros on the Greek island of Crete uh, is in itself a beautiful story of how life can just serve up such unexpected invitations and in their case uh, a pathway into farming. But when they began to learn <clears throat> the craft of olive farming, working with teachers that were bringing generations of knowledge they also discovered how our modern food systems are putting extraordinary stress on both the farmer and the community but also the land and the wider web of life around it two fields is a response to these challenges it's a living inquiry um, their ethos is anti-scale it's how to work with small and still make a big and beautiful impact. Now Will is uh, an incredible human who at his age is already doing extraordinary things and he shares what they are learning with such humility. I'm a real big fan of what they're doing and how they're doing it and the olive oil and the other products they're producing is also of another level which demonstrates to me at least that human scale business with deep community roots powered by love and care has got to be a big part of what emerges from the collapse of this industrial nightmare which no longer serves the vast majority of living beings on this earth human and non-human it also reminds me of this critical importance of human scale and small but persistent and dedicated action to regenerate life around us Sometimes it's easy to get lost and overwhelmed in large-scale system change, which we clearly urgently need. But what we decide to do every day, wherever we are, really matters. Paul Hawkin once wrote of the importance and value in the small interactions in habitats and ecosystems. And this, I feel, is as true for our human habitats and ecosystems. Helping, caring, loving, taking responsibility for life around us in the places we live, supporting and showing up for others who really need help, human and non-human, it matters, and it matters so much. And if we could scale that, then wow, imagine what could be. 
So let's cut to it. This is the Spaceship Earth podcast with Will Roll from Two Fields Zacross. Enjoy. Okay, Will, welcome to the Spaceship Earth podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be back. It's a pleasure. Where um, whereabouts are you right now on our our Spaceship Earth? Uh, I am in Zacross, which is a village in the kind of eastern corner of Crete. Uh, and specifically, so I'm this is, this... in my uh, brother's in-law's house. So okay. So this is this is effectively the uh, the the sort of the, the mothership, is it not, or the home of Two Fields, which we'll get into. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, two. Literally, Two Fields is just down the road. So amazing. So you can see the fields from where you are. Uh, <laughs> ish, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so how, how how are you anyway? How, how are you doing right now? Obviously, it's been. I, I have to ask that question because it's, you know, these times are slightly uh, bonkers. So, uh, yeah, how's it all going for you? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's good. Uh, this is the first time in a really long time that my family and I have been able to come to Zacros and spend time with family. Um, so, uh, we've been waiting quite a while to be able to do that. And I took two weeks off. We, we, we haven't been doing deliveries for two weeks and we just said, now is the moment to, to be all together. And my brother's got a beautiful baby girl who's coming up 15 months. So we've just been spending time playing and and enjoying each other's company. Nice. Is that, is that the first time you've met? No, we met Your once week. at Christmas, yeah. so uh, it's the right. first time we've had some real kind of proper time together. Which is, it's just, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just beautiful to be all together, you know. Yeah, no, for sure. What's the, what's the, what's how, how's sort of COVID and Crete been? What's the, what's the been the sort of context out there? It's strange, really, because when I came, kind of at the beginning, there was there was nothing really. It's so remote. And also, life here is is predominantly it, when we were in a complete rural farming community. So, right, you know, most people's day to day jobs don't have to worry about being two meters near anyone. You're in an olive field, um, yeah. And it was re- pretty unaffected, but and surprisingly, uh, Greece was kind of really good at uh, making certain decisions and and doing things like that. But uh, as time's gone on, it's kind of you know, as is the way of a small village, there's rumours that it's here or here or there, and you know it's coming closer. So uh, it's funny, isn't it? It's you can feel in the remote part of anywhere, but but sometimes we're all connected by some things. Yeah, e- exactly. And I think <clears throat> it does. It, it does feel like now, anyway, at this this time, it's um, yeah, it's 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 you know ev- everywhere is sort of starting to experience this. Uh, this virus, it feels like a more, you know, that it's, that it, that it's, it's kind of, yeah, it, it's kind of spreading to places where it, where it hasn't, uh, well down in Cornwall quite recently. And it was, um, you know, it was, there was a sense, well, this was what, probably about six weeks ago, eight weeks ago or something. It was before the, all the, the big G7 stuff, but there was a sense there chatting to locals there that they hadn't, they hadn't really felt it, mm. you know, hadn't really, it was sort of a bit, felt sort of a bit, you know, had sort of seen this kind of going on around the rest of the country, but had felt actually quite removed from it all. But of course now that has shifted. Um, yeah, strange times. Well, look, we won't get into that because that's <laughs> that's part COVID for the next. <laughs> yes, yeah. For the, for, uh, and get into this. So, listen, you, we're going to obviously um, get into the two fields uh, mission, 
um and uh and the, and and the the brilliant stuff that you and your brother and, and wider family are, are doing um and i know that you've t- you know you've have you know you've you've told the twofield story um you know a few times and it, and it's out there and i will link obviously to some of the things like that beautiful film that you guys have a, which sort of lands i think the mission but but um it would be amazing just to give a bit of context for listeners about two fields who might not know your work um and i'd love to know yeah you know just like maybe just give our folks a sense of, of the story of how it emerged you know and um and then we can get into the sort of like the mission the mission today after that but yeah can you just give us a bit of a bit of a bit of the backstory you know what where, where it came from and maybe the seeds that that, that sort of brought it into the world? Yeah, I think um, the kind of, I was, a, a, I was a, it was funny because my brother and I were living in very different kind of worlds and our interests and loves kind of collided together. But really the, the story is that back in about 2013, we came on holiday to Crete and we came mm. to Zacros and there my brother, uh, met Eleni for the first time and fell kind of head over heels in love. And he'd uh, just, I think he'd just finished university and was kind of at that transition stage. And he left and then and then it didn't take long until he realised he, he couldn't really be anywhere else but Zacros because of her. And so he he came and moved uh, to Zacros to to be with her and, and to kind of, to you know, give give that love the best chance you mm. can have. Um, and at, at the same sort of time, I was um, studying design. I kind of fell in love with design from a young age, a way to be curious and ask questions. And it was really a vehicle, even from like 15, it was a vehicle for me to work on the environment and do things around the environment. And that's what I loved. And mm. and I was able to do that when I was younger and and it was only when I went to university, I realized that not all design was focused on kind of the environment. I had a very romantic sense of design and not everyone mm. designing things was trying to change the world for good. And mm. I was spending more and more time in Greece with Harry and we, there's a beautiful community here and it's a, it's a lifestyle deeply connected to nature. Um, and so there's, there is a romance here and you know, a lot of people eat much of what they grow, they're self-sustained, there's, and, and they're farming people and connect to the land. And there's this craft that's been passed down the generations. But at the same time, we saw for the first time, because we had absolutely no experience prior to it, the reality of industrial and conventional farming. And, and we kind of, as we understood the place more, we saw the, that friction. Um, mm. and, and so at first Harry was working the olives just as a way to support himself because that's the industry of the village. Um, and so he worked there and, and I was becoming a bit more frustrated in, in the design world. And, and we felt that there was something really special here and, and there was a way to do something, some different. So, you know, as the story kind of progresses, it was, we, we became apprentices to, master craftsmen in, in the village and, and learnt the crafts. And we also started exploring and delving into regenerative farming. At the time, it wasn't regenerative farming, really. I mean, I, I was probably 19, 20, so I'm 25 now, so it was about 
2015 we kind of started and uh, and and then we took the jump and and bought our own two fields with the idea of how can we farm in harmony with nature and how can we do something that gives back amazing and and um and just explain to folks how the how the the model you've been de- developing works right because obviously you've got the two fields there in uh, in Sacros, right? Is that yes? Pronounce that right. Um, and then you're 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 building out um, a, a, a kind of direct relationship with customers, and that's mainly here in the UK. Is that right? Yeah. So um, I'm mainly based in the UK uh, and kind of doing that side of things, and Harry's uh, mainly here on the ground uh, with the trees. And then together, kind of my sustainability background and his his kind of farming knowledge, we are. Um, together doing a lot of the regenerative kind of major regenerative projects and you know when we started we we started with with batch one a few years ago now and it we started with just an experiment we said okay let's do this and and let's see how it goes and then all the best things start with an experiment (laughs) yeah yeah, exactly and and a year later we'd sold out and we said well maybe there's something here right um but i think going back to those kind of catalyst moments one of them was definitely coming to the village and tasting the oil for the first time. And that moment of being like, oh, wow, this is what real olive oil tastes like. Uh, yeah, tell us about that. Tell, tell us a bit more about that. Because I mean, I think that, I, I, you know, again, in this sort of world of where we have this sort of, a, you know, seemingly at times, at least for some of us, we see, you know, we see these sort of products all around us. But often we're, you know, we're not, as I say, we're often we're so disconnected from where they come from and... What's what really we should be looking for? And tell, tell us a bit about that. What was what? What is this? What is this? You know, tell us about the the, the olives and the olive oil, and, and and what is it that is that is, I guess the um, the authenticity. I guess that you've experienced that you experienced out there. Uh, I think it's it's a number of things, and I think as, as I'm sure we'll get into, it's the there's a level of complexity because um, we like to. We like to actually separate the craft and the farming because actually there's a really beautiful craft that's been honed here, but there's a system that forces farmers to, to into a certain way of farming. But but the village, as is a Greek village, there's so many generations. Um, Eleni, who's my brother's wife, her grandfather is alive and he's in his mid-90s. And he planted a lot of the trees that are now farmed to this day. And when he was farming, there were no chemicals and there was, there was nothing like that. And so I think what's special about, firstly, there's kind of, uh, there's the idea that there's these variables that you don't control. Part of the island where we are, has, I think it has some of the most sunlight hours in Europe. Uh, the conditions are beautiful for olives. But then also you've got, you've got three, four generations who have been farming olives whose life has been dedicated to that craft, whose whole livelihood has been based on that. And so there's an intimate connection to the land, the olive and the person. And mm. a, a big part of that is also we're in a very undulating part of the land. So there's no... Uh, oh, there's a bit... That's your niece. That's my niece just uh, trying, to, trying to get on the podcast. It's all right. It's, not, it's fine. Um, One day. <laughs> you know, here there's there's 
it's a very undulating land and everything's done by hand. So although now there's not sticks that are um, beating the trees like there used to be, there's sticks with little motors with soft fingers. They're, you know, everyone is, is on them. And then we're hand sorting the olives in the nets. We're removing the, the leaves. We're putting them into the sacks by hand. So there's, there's no kind there's of connection. There's yeah, no there's a connection. There's no rows and rows and rows of olive trees with big tractors, huge sprays and, and industrial practices that there is a deep connection. And, and, you know, I can see from sitting here, um, a mountain in the background and a hundred olive trees, you know, it's, it's not being a farmer in Zacros isn't a job. It's not something, it's just the life you live. And, and, mm. and I think there's something very kind of, special about that what was um can you let's talk a little bit about that um i guess the the evolution of of olive growing or cultivating from what you've learned from working with you know the the wider family and like you say the the grandfather who's you know who, who was responsible for planting many of these trees like what can you tell us a little bit about what they've witnessed change like what has what are the sort of pressures and you know I'm, I'm guessing like all you know like all um most of our sort of approach to agriculture you know we've gone for this kind of efficiency approach um mainly driven by you know financial pressures or, or whatever but that has taken people off the land and bought more like you say, this sort of disconnection, whether that's machinery, whether that's, you know, chemicals and pesticides. And stuff. But tell us is, is, tell us how this, from what you've understood about how the olive uh, approach to kind of olive farming, has, has that, is that also been impacted in the same way that we hear about many other forms of, of agriculture? Yeah, I think a lot of it's kind of similar. I think a big part of it is Eastern Crete becoming connected, you know, for, for many years. It was a, a, a system that worked within itself and there was no big export industry. And so, you know, one of our biggest challenges here and is the case in a lot of places is uh, that we're, we're in a huge monoculture now because there's been planting and planting of trees because that became the industry that defined the place. And so when you look out and you see thousands of olive trees, that isn't born of nature, that's born of industry. And, and so part of it, I think, is a system that drives for yield over everything else. The, the reward in this game is quantity. And the insecurity and reality of farming means that people are searching for certainty. So what used to be someone had, you know, 100 or 200 olive trees maximum, some people now have 2,000 olive trees. If you leave Zacros, some people have 10,000 olive trees. Some people have 100,000 olive trees. And, and, you know, at some point that just does, that, that doesn't quite work. Um, and so the problem is, is here specifically, there's a cooperative, which in theory works very well, but in practice doesn't. And, and people come, huge companies come to buy from the cooperative. But the buyers want as much oil as they can get for as little money as possible. And the, the solution that is kind of pushed is chemicals. And the result is 
hundreds of olive trees that are essentially on life support and addicted to chemicals. Um, and it's kind of a, that's the kind of reality we're in, I think. And it's, I think there's a great romance outside of Greece or the Mediterranean of olives. But, you know, I, uh, conventional agriculture has seeped into every aspect of farming in many, many ways. Maybe that, you know, there's much, there's pockets of, of, of untouched areas, but we are in, uh, you know, as far Eastern Crete as possible and uh, sorry, conventional agriculture is here. Hmm. Gosh, yes. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, it, yeah, the monoculture approach, which is obviously taken over the world. Um, how's the, like, how have the, um, let's, let's go to the sort of human dimension here. What have you noticed or learned or witnessed from, um, these generations that you that you've been working with through the family what's their take on all of this what's their sense of of um you know i guess there's again because there was a I was interesting you know you, you do get a sense obviously when this when this approach first started to um you know of, of chemical based pesticide based or whatever it was agriculture of course it looked um as Andy Cato actually, you, I did a podcast with recently. Was said, you know, he said, it, you know, it seemed miraculous at the time. Do you know what I mean? Because you could sort of produce these, you know, these bigger yields. Um, but of course, you're through that process. You're, you're, um, you know, you're destroying the conditions for for life down the line. So you're kind of in this kind of weird space. But what's the what's the sense from um, that you get from? um local farmers like what was their awareness of this and 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 yeah how do they see it now i guess well i think something something that's probably not discussed about enough which you just said is chemical farming works it just works within a reductionist farming approach like it you know it's like a design problem right if your design mm. problem is so small and the perspective of it is so uh, restricted, then your solution only deals with that restriction. So chemical farming, you know, re and reductionist farming is really only interested in one thing, and that is the next harvest. It's not interested in 10 harvest time, 60 harvest time when there won't be a harvest. It is the next harvest. So that's the kind of, that's the kind of conundrum you're in. And, and the other con the kind of reality is it, it even works today in our community on the basis that one of our biggest threats is the, is the fruit fly and the fruit fly can be incredibly damaging. And when you have a community who's, you know, from 60 to a hundred percent of income comes from the ability to grow and produce olive oil, risk is incredibly high and chemicals have been uh, kind of promised as is lowering that risk. Of course, the risk when you it's like when you zoom out the risk is a hundred times more if we keep spraying chemicals <laughs> it's an irreversible risk mm. that that we're plummeting mm. into so you know even today i can give you an example that a month ago the fruit fly started for us in the village and often the first wave is big and this wave was huge and we've just inherited fields that uh, we're looking after for our family-in-law and it's the first time we have had had a slightly more trees and we're trying to balance how we work. 
The organic way works, or the regenerative way works, we spray a white kaolin dust on the, uh, the olive. But it works if you get your timing perfectly and you can keep spraying that kaolin dust on and it's quite kind of intensive. We missed the... What's, ka- what's kaolin dust? What is that? So it's a, it's a white clay and essentially mm. the fruit fly is looking for a nice juicy olive to lay its right. eggs. And what the clay does, it makes the olive surface very rough and so it's no longer it. um, attractive to the fruit fly. And got it. It's like putting um, it's like putting washing up liquid on your broad beans. Yeah, sort of like and the other thing it does is well. So it's it's good for the heat um, and reflection for the olives as well. Mm. Um, so we missed there was one there's one field we missed kind of the perfect window to go, um, and because of everything we're doing, and so there is fruit fly damage in one of our fields. Those 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 olives will fall off, and it won't detriment because of the time of the year. It won't detriment the quality, but it will affect our kind of yield quantity. Mm. There's a there's a thousand trees in Zacros that sprayed chemicals. They don't have fruit fly damage because those chemicals kill the fruit fly. But so it's a sh- you know it's a short term answer to. It's, it doesn't work, but it's very hard to have a conversation when someone could come to our fields and say, well, you've got fruit fly damage. So, what, you know, and, and so the organic or regenerative way works, but you have to get things right. And, you know, the reality is that fruit fly damage in a monoculture is natural to, to mm. a much of the degree. And, and so we have to kind of, think about where we're going because the cycle of spraying sorry i will come to your question i've gone on a massive detail no 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 it's good no it's good this is good the spray the cycle of spraying uh, one part of the monoculture is there's no natural resistance to pests and the cycle is you spray and then the fruit fly is uh, is kept at bay and the next year you spray but well hang on a minute the fruit fly is still coming the fruit flies kind of adapted a bit, or, you know, it probably wouldn't happen a year, but for the sake of argument. And so what's the answer? Oh, we better spray more. And then you're in a, this vicious cycle of, okay, well, mm. the answer is more chemicals. But we all know that's not actually the answer. Because at some point, somewhere, the system, both globally, but it will happen in stages, I imagine, locally across the world will collapse. And, and, and the question is, can we make change significant enough before it collapses? And the real answer, which we've come to discover, I think, I was so, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm pretty young, but five years ago when we started, I was even more naive than I am now in the fact that I was so focused on building a brand and business that did good and regenerating land. And there is one key component that is missing, and that's people. You can't make change without the people who want to do it and have a reason to do it. And so you have to fit all of these pieces together in order to make meaningful change. Yeah, 100% of the people piece um is is the key. I mean on 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 that like and we'll we'll we'll, we'll dig right into this you know more so in terms of how you're working on the ground but just something there's something that's in my mind just listening to you there talking about like the fruit flies and stuff like what 
So let's talk about the monoculture. What would be what would what would diversity look like in Zacross? Like what should it look like? Or you know, or or in that area, what is it? What is missing? What's been stripped out in terms of you know focusing you know um, too much on on the olive tree? What else has what else has has been damaged or is is a, has been emitted from the system that that um, that could start to redress that balance? Well, I think. That's a really interesting question because um, I think what's missing or what was, we're in a unique situation, I think, because what's missing and what was here to create diversity is probably not going to be the thing that rebalances it because, Mm. you know, no one is going to start ripping up olive trees. There is, there is, you know, and and so, what used to be here? There used to be wheat grown here. There used to be uh, 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 different vegetables. There was, I know, there was a big wheat and grain industry uh, before. There was a banana industry before, um, and there was olives. And there's a couple of challenges. I, I do want to go back to your original question, but there is a couple of challenges. One is that as our climate changes. Zacros is a very hot and dry place mm. and it's only becoming more hot and more dry and that limits a certain kind of things you can grow, right? Yeah. But the answer I think, or the answer we've come to, I think, and we've explored and we've experimented with and we've looked at all sorts of angles is we will never change the fact that there are thousands of trees in Zacros. It, it just, but what we can change is what we're kind of talking about is the microbiodiversity. We won't be able to change thousands of fields, but we own 200 trees. And within that 200 trees and those two fields, we can start to build diversity and we can build pockets of diversity around our tree through mixed cover crops. And the idea is hopefully that we can, two fields is a, is a lab. It's an experiment. It's a way to prove there's an alternative. And if we can do that, one of the most beautiful and special things about Zacros is that although there's thousands of olive trees and thousands of fields, there's hundreds of farmers. There's no one big farmer here. All of the farmers are small scale, hands-on families. And that creates an enormous amount of potential for change. And so Slowly, you know, if you zoomed out and you had a drone of this place, you'd see thousands of olive trees. I hope that in, as a, if you had a time lapse, there would be slowly a patchwork quilt of cover crops coming across the area. And eventually we would have a place that is lush and green and diverse among the olive trees. Because I'm not sure there's a situation where we're taking any olive trees away, so we have to work around that. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. Well, we'll, we'll um, I want to get into these things like the cover crops and all that kind of stuff, and and, and understand more about the the what, what the two fields approach looks like. But maybe on that, because you know, we hear, you know, again, you know, this whole, um, this idea of regenerative farming, regenerative agriculture. Um, you know, more people are, are starting to understand or starting to hear of this. You know, we're seeing, you know films documentaries things being written about it all over the place and obviously it means you know more to some than others but um 
but for you like what 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 for you guys what 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 does regenerative farming mean to you and and why is it so important um i think it's evolved in what it means for us in the in the at the first instance and it still is it was all about farming and harmony of nature for us you know and i think that's evolved to we need to farm in a way that gives more than we take how are we giving more than we take and that started in just the fields and that has been broadened in recent years into our community as well so regenerative is both regenerating land and regenerating communities because when you have a farming community those things are kind of so deeply linked and we have this idea or we have this idea that if you went into nature um if you went to a forest specifically just after it rained maybe you would smell the life in that forest a forest that's been untouched and there would be a set of natural principles that happen within that forest with the leaves falling breaking down organic matter microbes in the soil birds diverse species insects bugs bees all of the things and how do we go and that's a natural system that has balance and that is in kind of uh, the perfect natural cycle so a lot of what we are doing is replicating that natural cycle and so one of the questions we've sat with for a long time is how do we become more forest than field how do we move that needle and so regenerative is is a, for us a lot about that i mean in in the bigger picture it's or in the kind of idea it's about soil health it's about regenerating land and giving back to land but but it's as the conversation has carried on i think it's it's much broader than that it's how are we repairing our planet and how are we building a future that's possible because right now those are the two biggest pressing things that every human has to deal with yeah i love that love that i think there's i think that you know the you know this kind of symbiosis between humans and the non-human world around us is is the key you know you're sort of nailing it out with because we're completely interdependent i think that's what we're seeing you know we're seeing this across farming we're seeing this across food production everywhere right but we're also seeing it pretty much in every mm. human system that we've created you know this this monocultural approach this lack of diversity whether it's whether it's you know and I mean that in its sort of widest sense, whether it's diver- lack of diversity of ideas, of, mm. of perspectives, of you know, of 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 people themselves. You know, we 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 sort of stripping it out. We've stripped it out, and I think this 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 um, you know the way that you're speaking to this regeneration of um, or, you know of of sort of human community in amongst this this um, that you know the the earth community that we're cultivating or, or trying to sort of become in relationship with whether we're producing olives or you know um maintaining our our own kind of health and well-being it's all it's all it's all one and the same right and uh it's um yeah it's super super interesting so tell me how does the yeah i mean i, I wanted to say quickly just before we move on i want to say two things yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's um i find it beautiful uh 
I find it so incredible the reflections of of uh, the environment and the planet and people. You know, the the phrase, for example, the phrase "there's strength in diversity." That is true in so many cases, in everything, and actually, it's if it's. It's true when we talk about the planet. It's true when we talk about social issues. It's true throughout the world. And and what makes me really excited is, is like I said, there's no change without people. And I think we're awakening. There's 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 people who are interested in this. There's people who are who are demanding change. There's people who are having conversations. And and what happens in the land and what happens between minds is equally as important and the, they both have to happen together. And it feels like there's a real rhythm with those two things now, the conversations, the mindsets, the, the change, the, the frustration and, the, and the, the want to build something better and the practice that's going on. And those two are so, so linked. And Yeah, no, 100%. And one thing I wanted to that, say oh, before we yeah. moved on was, was to go back to your original question about farming here is it's really important and it's really important to understand and it's really hard with language sometimes that harry and i are are never ever sitting here and pointing at farmers and pushing blame because that's not the reality of the situation that's unfolded if you can imagine that you've never left greece you've never left crete and one big you know, huge company is coming to buy or two is coming to buy oil. You know, the only reason our regenerative approach works in our case is because we have two brothers. One is in England building a business for good, although we do everything together. And one is in Greece uh, on the on the on the ground working with olives. You know, how can you expect people to change when they're trapped in a system and they have no alternative, a system that has prioritize yield, quantity, and a system that is pushing down prices, has insecure wages, and the answer is buy more chemicals. You know, so there's there's no kind of, there's not a fault of people. And something that's really interesting to think about is, think about olive oil conventionally. The product is a poor the product from industrial olive oil is poor substitute for real olive oil. It's not good for the health of people. It's uh, not good for the planet. And it's not good for the farmer. So the person who grows it, it's not good for. And the person who consumes it and enjoys it, it's not good for. So who is it good for? Well, there must be only one answer. And it's some huge, probably multinational, greedy you know, there's there's something in that system that's broken because for everyone else it seems to not be working. Yet this is the system that seemingly auto corrects yeah. year on year and year on year. And so it's and, it, and it's and it's stacked and it's stacked. You know, sort of uh, you know high in the supermarket. And most people, at least, I'm probably generalising here, but many people haven't got a clue. They they see these. Why would they? You know, they see the they see these things on the shelves and. It looks nice and it's got all these kind of like uh, packaging that sort of expresses this sort of wonderful natural product mm. and um, and in it goes, right? Do you know what I mean? It's like, um, well, you, you think there is this, it. yeah. 
you think about a litre of oil in Sainsbury's, you can get for f- four quid, five quid. That's been packaged, probably produced. What actually happens in the industry is it's produced, 10% of it's produced somewhere like Zacros. It's then flown to somewhere else like Italy or Spain or another place in Greece, mixed with 90% of poor oil, passed off as good oil, says bottled in Italy, and it's actually a mix of five different oils from all over the place, shipped, labelled, branded, marketed, and on a supermarket shelf for £5 a litre. How much is a farmer being paid per litre for that oil? It's, It's pennies. How can you live like that? Yeah, and that's and that's being um, repeated across pretty much every uh, every kind of product, right? Um, you know, mo- most you know across you know most kind of um, well, many many of our of our sort of uh, farming products, right? Whether it's I mean, was chatting with was chatting um, with uh, again with Andy Cater about about wheat, you know. Um, mm. And how that you know the, how that how that system has developed, and the relationship between the farmer and the breakdown of that relationship, and this you know focus on on yield, regardless of its nutritional quality, regardless of the impact it's made to the soils and the the natural world, um, and 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 obviously regardless of of the the uh, the health and well being of the farmer themselves you know yeah the whole system has been designed to who is it actually benefiting um and then we have this narrative of like well it's it's good for the consumer which is just you know again it's just a nut story because it's it's you know how you know we know that so many things now are especially sort of pesticide or chemical driven agriculture i mean there's a you know vast amounts of evidence mounting up about the impacts it's having on human health, these products, and obviously, you know, we're we're uh, we're destroying the uh, capabilities of the systems to keep, you know, providing for the future. So it doesn't make any sense. And but our story, uh, our sort of dominant story, sort of um, tells us otherwise. Blimey! Sorry, it's I complicated, went on a, I went isn't on it? A bit there. I, 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 I got a bit. I no, got it's great. There. Tunnel. No, it's important. This is but no, but this is really really important. But listen, tell me on 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 this. Tell me like um, like you and you you and your brother Harry. Like how how's that panned out? Like your you guys working, you know, starting to develop this whole, um, bringing this kind of philosophy and working hand in hand with, you know, on the ground there. What's that been like? Like, were, were you kind of? I'd love to know. Like, what were, you know? What was it when you first started um, developing this? How were you? I'd say perceived, or what was the relation like with you know farmers, and and how's that shifted, and what's that? You know, can just tell us a little bit about how that journey's been. And I, I was you know two 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 young sort of uh, English brothers um, hitting the ground in Zacross and then and building out this. I'm just really intrigued by how that's been. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's been a, a a funny and amazing journey. I think a big part of our journey here is the fact that Harry is part of the community, and I am for X amount of months. But but may, you know, really, Harry's life is here. Um, 
he was accepted and and part of a Greek family and and you know there wasn't a case where he's here for two months of the year and paying mm. to do something for the other ten and you know so there's that and, and secondly we had the most incredible mentor and teacher in Eleni's father he had this ability he was a meticulous craftsman he was so you know he everyone respected the the kind of farming approach he had he was conventional but he cared so deeply about the trees and that's what i'm saying you know in the narrative of talking about these things it's easy to kind of somehow come to the conclusion people don't care and that couldn't be further from the truth farmers really care um and he had this deep connection and care for his land and he was so special because you can imagine the situation two english brothers We'd never farmed anything in our life, let alone olive trees. Being taught farming from a master and through a language barrier, talking to a conventional farmer about the invisible microbes in the soil <laughs> that are key to everything. Mm. You can kind of imagine the, the head-scratching conversations. Yeah. Um, and we were lucky because he taught us the craft and and the best thing Yanni ever did was give us the space to go and to go and experiment. You know, he never said, "No, this is how you do it." No, you can't do that. He said, "You, it's your, you know, these are your fields, and I'll teach you what you want to learn, and I'll be there for you, and I'll help you with everything." But you have to do things the way you want to do it. And so we were so lucky to have someone to provide that. Mm. Um, and and beyond that, the reality is we've never. There's a, there's a, this is a good kind of indication. We would talk about it a bit, but there's thousands, we have thousands of litres of olive oil produced in this community. It's a farming community. Only 5% of it is organic. And so that's a pretty small underdog situation. Mm. And so we've connected with, there's some wonderful organic farmers, but it's a small, small community. And actually we, you know, for the last few years five years we've never shouted about what we're doing we've never stormed into anyone else's fields and told them they were doing it wrong we've never you know we've we have been quietly figuring out and going about our business and slowly year on year more people stop and ask more people are interested more people are wondering um and and so that's been such a kind of heartening and an amazing thing to witness but we've kind of almost kept ourselves to ourselves and when people have, are ready and open to come and talk we've we've been open and ready to talk mm. and are they i mean you spoke about like the fruit fly but are there other obvious um factors now that people are kind of starting to become aware of like what's the soil status how is climate starting to impact you know is there an obvious breakdown in sort of biodiversity and wildlife and if you can give us a bit of that, like, are people, is that happening? Is it clear? Are people sort of starting to wake up to that? And how does your, is your approach, are you starting to see that this regeneration is happening? Um, yeah, if you could just share a bit around that. I think that the, uh, one story that, that uh, uh, I think sums it up really, I can talk about the wider community, but 
uh, Yanni, who was our teacher, and kind of, he passed away recently, which was was very sad. And um, mm-hmm. one of our the most proud moment we ever had was when we first purchased two fields, then uh, and they're next to each other. Um, one field was particularly kind of unloved. They were owned. The story is actually, I don't think I've ever told this story. The, st- the story was actually that it what used to be one field and a grandfather owned it. And when he re- kind of said farming life, I'm old and I, I don't want to keep farming. He split the fields in two and gave one to each granddaughter. And, and one of the, and, and then in time they kind of, and this is another big problem. Young people are moving out of the community. There's there's a very aging population here. There's not a lot of young farmers around at all. Um, and, and eventually those two fields came up for sale. And and so we it's kind of nice that we we got those two fields and we reunited them as they were to almost one field. But one was particularly unloved and Yanni came and he helped us prune and he showed us how to prune. And, and one big process we, we use is... Uh, cultivating microbiology from untouched soils and we were doing the microbes and we were we were looking at other things and we weren't using chemicals and we were you know the the first beginnings of regenerative organic regenerative and then years went by and he ca- a couple of years went by and he came back for our second harvest for batch two he's always in the fields and we were looking at the harvest and we we're looking at the olive trees and it was the three of us and he just looked and he said I don't know what you, you know, I don't know what you've done, but I can't believe how strong and healthy your trees look in such a short period. And he just looked at us both and he just nodded. And that nod, you know, especially when you're in a, in a place with a language barrier, sometimes an action speaks a thousand words. And it was just the most, mm-hmm. it was a, like a nod, like you've learned what I've taught you and you, whatever you're doing is working and it was like the nod of a seasoned farmer saying, you know, you've got this. Good on you. It's good. <laughs> and it was just a real magical moment. So, but kind of broader than that, a few years ago, there was a bit of a semi-ish collapse in the system in that there was some temperature problem. I don't know the details of which... One side of the problem is that some farmers are now having thousands of thousands of trees or thousands of a thousand trees are not really look don't have the capacity to look after them and the quality drops. Another problem was there was some temperature thing and there was something in the soil that was affecting the trees, bacteria or something, not in our fields, but in other fields. And Zacros in to make extra virgin olive oil, it has to be of an acidity below 0.8. And if you're 0.5 or below, you're kind of very good olive oil, the lower the better. And if you enter 0.3, you're kind of exceptionally good, like very, very, very good. And 0.2 and below is like, um, you know, and there's not a direct, direct, obviously taste and there's other factors and things, but that's a good indication of quality. Zacros produces 0.3, some of the best olive oil you can get. And there was a few years ago where that, and they get paid based on that quality, where the oil produced, for whatever reason, a mix of natural and other circumstances, 
was just not good. There was this bacteria, there was something else, there was something else. And people were producing oil that wasn't even extra virgin olive oil. And that was unheard of for this area. This is like, the, mm. you know, on Crete, in Greece, Crete is renowned. And on Crete, Zakros is the place. And suddenly, you can't get paid for that oil. And your whole livelihood. And so there was this whole huge worry and problem and situation where people had spent a year producing olive oil and the olive oil just wasn't up to scratch. And that was so unheard of here. And so there was this kind of semi-collapse of what on earth is happening? And so I think some of the biggest, you know, some of the biggest change that will happen in this community and I, I would imagine many communities is the dynamic and the incentive for change and providing people with fair and secure wages. And, and, and I hope we don't get to that stage, but at some point that system might collapse where people just can't live off the land anymore because the land can't give any more than it's given. We live on a life-giving rock called Earth, hurtling through space. How bonkers is that? You're listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast. I don't know if sorry, I don't know if that answered your question, but no, no, it I, I, it it does, and I, I guess it well, it, it it I guess it brings to light the the again the sort of the um just how uh, fragile these relationships are, right, and that. Um, things beyond uh, this again I guess beyond the sort of human sort of cleverness of industrial systems you know you know we can't we can't control these things you know so we have to sort of um, find ways to yeah I guess yeah build that resilience into these systems as much as we can so that um, you know we create as much certainty as is possible um, to sustain these ways of being right with the land and these ways of producing. I mean, how long has like, give us a sense because the, I mean, olives have been great. I mean, give us a sense of like the sort of history of, of, of olive growing in, in Zacros. It goes back a long way, right? Yes. Well, there's, we kind of um, talk about having, t- there's two types of trees in the area. There's ancient olive trees. Uh, they were olive trees that were kind of, producing olive oil but they weren't farmed for an industrial end they were just kind of in the community and Mm. they are hundreds of years old and there's some of them but the majority of trees are in industry trees and they're about you know art two fields is about 70 years old and Mm. and like i said between antoni who's a friend who's in his 70s uh, late 60s 70s and grandpa manoli who's in his mid 90s those two planted a lot of the trees here with the with the with the foresight of wanting to support their family for generations and generations not with any malicious industrial farming agenda yeah <laughs> so yeah. uh but then there's this we are kind of um we're in a little village and nestled by the mountains and there's a gorge with it's called the gorge of the dead where the minoans buried their uh their dead in 
the caves in the side of the mount in the side of the cliffs of the gorge and you can walk down the gorge and you can walk down the gorge through to the sea and at the top of the mountain in Zakros there's a natural water source and it flows from source to sea and you can actually do that walk and it's beautiful and 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 the village and life is has been dictated by that source to sea ge- geography and if you go down into the gorge and you take a, a left and a right and a secret passage you can find seven ancient olive trees in their own little ecosystem they are hundreds and hundreds of years old and they are tall and beautiful and gnarly hmm. and it is the most incredible thing because they are completely untouched they have never been farmed in the sense they've never been sprayed we've collected them once our friend antoni uh uh, has the rights for those trees and he said oh you can go down and collect them and, and you have to hike down the gorge and we had the generator and the nets and the sticks on our back and it was like the hardest day's work I've ever done it was the most magical thing mm-hmm. I've ever done and what's so incredible about this is just down the road in the gorge there's a perfect bubble of regenerative farming but it's not even farming in the sense that the gorge the gorge trees are tall and strong and produce beautiful olive oil the uh, the river flows beneath the gorge so the roots tap into the natural water source so they're really nice and healthy there's goats so there's the animal land relationship wild goats roaming around and it, they're nibbling on the olive trees although the olive trees have grown tall they're pooing and they're scuffing the ground and they have the sunlight and the shade and it's this perfect little bubble of uh an ecosystem like it's an actual ecosystem you know is this uh, where the oregano comes from the oregano comes from the gorge as well yeah and in the mountains i've had some of that pretty um, good so <laughs> uh sorry remind me your question <laughs> no well uh it, well it was exactly this it was this kind of um it was the 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 ancientness of of the olive in of, in that in those land in in these landscapes and like you know how it you know how far back it goes and um which you which you've just been speaking to i guess it's well, there's a, a, there's an olive tree on crete yeah. not too near us it's 3000 years old blimey and there's there's kind of evidence of minoans doing something <laughs> with olives so it's a it's a deep yeah. culture yeah, just, just just tell us a little bit of it because again, you know, the people, you know, often will have a relationship potentially here or, or wherever with, you know, a bottle of olive oil. But give us a bit more of the like the sort of like, you know, what it what it means in these cultures and how it's used. You know, there's some. Can you give us some sort of, um, I know, a bit a bit of olive oil geekery? Just <laughs> so like, what else is? How, how else is the olive kind of like? How is it showing up in 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 daily life? Because I guess I hear people think, oh, you know, chuck a bit in a, you know, put a bit in a pan, put a bit in a, a dressing or whatever. But t- can you just give us a sense of how how it exists? Well, I think, um, man, this it also plays into regenerative, which is really interesting. But we've we go to the UK and we sell olive oil, right? And mm. 
And because of all the practices we use and because of the fact that we have 200 trees, we handpick every olive and we hand number every bottle that we produce and you can trace it back and you can see every, uh, you know, production method we use. And it's all in an area that's certified, renowned for olive production and its deep connection to land. Um, you know, we are a high quality olive oil and we sit in a price bracket that reflects that especially in a market that can't grow olives, right? In Greece, no one has, well, in Zacros, no one has ever paid for olive oil. Because <laughs> everyone grows olives. So it's like, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, that, it's that connection. There's no, it's not, um, it's not something you go to the shop for. It's something that you go to. A bit the- like cider might have used to have been in Somerset many years ago, but. Um- yeah, yeah. And, and so, <laughs> Oil is just everywhere, you know. It's 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 um, you know one of the most one of the m- most magical moments was when we finished our first harvest and we came to the house I'm in right now and we sat round with a small bottle of oil and it was me, Yanni, Yanni's wife Katerina, Eleni, and Harry, and we tasted our first ever harvest from two fields. And there's not words that can describe that, I don't think. You know, you've you've worked so hard and you've given all you can and you get to taste the fruits of your labour. It's just something, it's something that feels deeply natural to, to work the land, to have a connection with the land and to produce something for the, from the land. Um, so it's it's hard to describe really, but there's such a deep mm. connection to it. Yeah, and you've um, you know, I guess that's thinking about this 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 connection land, and there are some other there are some other products that you've been um, also offering out through two fields, right? The, the I mean, the oreganos, and there's the sea salt and. How's that been? How's that sort of? Yeah, and again, it's all—it's from at least my understanding of it. It's—it's it's, again, it's very—it's done in. Uh, it seems to me, at least, anyway. It's—it's. It's, um, there's a moment in time when these these things are available, and you sort of offer them out. But it's—it seems to be that you're you're very much trying to um, offer these other products out you know in a in a way which is when they're available when there is enough we can we can offer them out but yeah i I mean one thing to note is is like zacros isn't a specifically bad conventional farming place i know it might seem like that after the last 30 minutes of conversation but it's just the reality of farming it's not anything more or less than that it's the reality of farming world over um hopefully that's changing though uh but to the other products one of the reasons we fell so deeply in love with sacros is because life is still connected to nature because Mm. in the summer now i i went out just uh, last week the water uh waves crash onto the rocks uh remotely at like out of the way in the, an area where you can't see any buildings, you can't see anything but rocks and sea. And the rock pools dry up 
and beautiful flakes and crystals of pure sea salt are there. And for hundreds of years, people have gone down and collected that sea salt and used it for their family. And actually, there's a beautiful story about there was a salt ban uh, in the 60s and the, the, uh, the people of the village said, well, you know, as is the village way, we're not listening to that. And they found a secret salt road to sneak down to the shore, to the rocks, to collect um, to correct the, rock, uh, the salt from the rocks. And it used to be two men and a donkey and as much salt as they can carry. And so I think part of the thing about being in a community like Zacros is we've become very aware that we've been told stories and taught ways that have been passed from generation to generation. And even though we're unlikely apprentices to olive farmers and we're unlikely, we're an unlikely next generation, we are a next generation. And we have a responsibility, I feel, and a duty to keep those traditions, to keep those stories, and to keep those that way of life alive and to pass that on. And so one of the ways we, we want to do that is by telling those stories and doing those things through two fields. You know, collecting salt and foraging oregano isn't really a business decision. It's a decision that is to spread and share the joy and the essence and the beauty of Zacros and how we're doing it and sharing those stories. Because it's been a privilege to be welcomed and embraced in a community. You know, there's something to be said, I think, about being given a life. You know, this was not a place we were born. This was not a place where we had family. This was not a place that a life that we came, we came into through a natural kind of family way. Yanni and Katerina and Eleni and the community here has given us a life and have welcomed us and have allowed us and embraced us as part of the community. And, you know, in the last couple of years, the question of how are we giving back and how are we playing a role in that community have become increasingly important to us. And so, Things like foraging the wild oregano in the gorge and going down and, and, and hand-picking it and removing the buds and bringing over, you know, 50 pouches at, you know, when we can and only in the spring because that's when it grows and going down and to do the salt only in the summer and to do it the way it's always been done. They're, they're opportunities for us to, 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 uh, to keep Zacros alive and to keep those stories alive. Yeah, but I love I love it because um, not not only just because it all tastes amazing because I've had <laughs> I've had the sea salt I've had, I've had the oregano I've 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 made sourdough with the salt I've made that oregano has been on pizzas it's been on so many things and it's and it's stunning but but I, from what you're speaking to I love it because you know there is there is a sense of connection with those ingredients and because the way that you do it you do it with understanding the limits as well you know and the the consequence of well at least it seems to me um of um you know when again when we when we when we maximize versus optimizing you know um when we when we when we when we look more at these all of these things as part of like you say this living community all of these different communities the human community the earth communities the you know all these different things that are that are emerging and then you're approaching it with this responsibility and i think that's what's so 
interesting, um, you know, because the temptation for many uh, businesses, even, you know, inverted commas, sustainable businesses, you know, is still to maximize, you know. Um, and I think that's also one of the big tensions of this times that we're living in at the moment. There is a desire, there is a narrative which says, you know, business as usual, but we'll just greenify everything, which we know is total bollocks. Pardon my French, but you know, it's just not, well, we have to, we have to sort of, we have to let go of those sort of that endless idea of, you know, growth that's unhinged from how life works. If that makes sense. Completely because, um, that was one of the first lessons we learned doing two fields. You know, we have 200 olive trees. And when we say small batch, we really mean small batch. And when we say batch, we mean batch because it's dictated by nature. And I remember the first year we sold out and we sold out quite early-ish. Um, and people came and said, well, you know, why don't you have any more olive oil? Why don't you have olive oil? So that's just not how it works. It's not an olive oil tap. Oil isn't produced year round. We we have one time where we harvest. You know, sea salt. You can't get sea salt year round. These are cycles. These are seasons, and that's how we want to build our business, and that's how we want to interact with the land. And so it was really interesting because when we sold out, people were asking and asking. But there is yeah. what there is. There is what we give as much as we can from our fields, and they provide what they provide, and there is nothing more. Yeah, and I it's 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 and it's a thing, and again, it's countercultural because we've we've become very accustomed in the last, you know, it's only probably actually the the last couple of decades, the last decade specifically, where sort of culturally in the West, particularly in the global North, we've become so used to whatever we want whenever we want it. Um, but again, it's like I, personally, I think there is so much joy in this idea of. Uh, and again, it's countercultural because we think, oh, yeah, but I want this stuff. But actually, the, the joy comes when there are limits, mm. <laughs> you know, when there are constraints, when something only shows up at certain times of the year uh, or, you know, in small quantities. Um, there is this this joy. I have one plum tree in my garden, right, which, <laughs> which, um, which, which, you know, every year I have a relationship with this tree, you know, and I and and every year it produces you know whatever fruit it produces and i tend to we have we eat some of it you know as 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 you know straight off the tree but i i create a lot of jam i create jam with as most of it and that will last now that will last or you know for for 6 months you know we'll have it in the winter we'll put it on porridge we'll mm. you know and you thought, i found a jar in the in the van actually <laughs> in the camper van it's like and the, again, the joy you get. Hiding places. Yeah, exactly. But it's just like, you know, it's one tree. But actually, you know, it can, if you get into a relationship with that, with that tree, you, 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 there is this sort of, there is this potential for actually, in you know, it, like way beyond what you can imagine in terms of the sort of joy that that brings, you know, not just in the output <laughs> and the yeah. yield, but also... And so I think what you're, I think what you're doing, and the way that you're, you, you know, you guys are exploring this, I think it's, it's so, um, not just amazing what you're up to, but I think it's you're shining a light on this shift to relationships and not just things. And I think that's, I think we could learn 
so much from that from that approach. And, and I think also what you just said is so true because your example is on the smallest of scale, but we actually need it on the biggest on on the world stage because what you're talking about is and what the food system needs is redefining value right mm. if you have something all year for pennies there is no value and i'm not talking monetary value value in all sorts of mm. senses and so mm. you know this idea of value and nature and understanding i think is really important and redefining that value is going to be a real fundamental element of building a better food system yeah no 100 um so listen on that i know that you've been you've got you know let's i'd like to talk about some of the the future plans that you're that you're cooking up at the moment particularly around you know the relationship to the communities that you're working with um you know this whole area of you know farmers and producers and also you are building this way of starting to look much more about um i guess i think you would call it the social regenerative approach to your work um can you speak a bit to to some of these plans and and and, and what they're about yeah i mean i'm conscious that we of of time and i'm also conscious we haven't even we haven't really delved into regenerative practices really but um, <laughs> which is pretty much what we actually do <laughs> Well, then, would you go where you want to go? Uh, if you want to, if we can, we 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 can go, we can go deeper into that, or we can we can shift to that afterwards. Whatever feels right. But yeah, I think what you what you're, it would be great to talk about, and and we haven't spoken about this at all, and it's been on kind of a really exciting project we've been working on, and and it really comes from this idea that how do we scale our impact, and how do we give back to our community because. In some senses, 200 trees isn't going to change the world. It's 200 olive trees. But in, in another sense, it is. And it has all the possibility to. Because small is beautiful and powerful. And actually, Two Fields is a, is a, is a like I said, it's like a lab. It's an experiment. It's a test. It's, a, it's something where we're always trying and testing things. And and what we realized is that actually, if we want to make change in a bigger sense and give back to our community, we need to start thinking about the system that we operate in. And Two Fields kind of operates outside of that system because we've been able to create a direct-to-consumer, a direct-to-independent retailer business, and we're not c- controlled by uh, the kind of people and things that control farmers in industrial agriculture one of the big these intermediaries here, effectively isn't it sorry the intermediaries it's yeah. the kind of intermediaries of, the, of of this whole system that that suck all the value out exactly and, and so so there's two problems in zacros is one is conventional agriculture destroying the soil and destroying the land and it is uh you know finite and we're heading for as we are globally ecological disaster and number two is fair and secure wages as i said the the we have a cooperative here and and we don't uh the farmers come to the cooperative and they mix all of the oil of all the farmers we work separately 
And so what happened a few years ago was Yanni had produced the most beautiful oil. He had worked really hard and he, he had, it was perfect. And he st- went to the cooperative and that oil would have got a good and fair price. However, it was then mixed in the cooperative vat of oil for some farmers who had loads of olive trees and couldn't look after them, some farmers who hadn't been doing the proper things, some farmers who were, sp- you know, spraying chemicals is a scale, right? Some farmers are spraying as minimum as possible and some are as maximum as possible. And it all gets mixed up and it goes to the common, uh, the lowest common denominator because that's how these things work. And so I, we witnessed, and when we talk about kind of seeing firsthand, we mean affecting the people we love and our family. We saw Yanni's yearly income of an oil that he produced that was beautiful half within two days because of the rest of the mixture of oil that was operating in that thing. And you can imagine the stress and the impact that that has. So it's not just about fair wages, it's about security. And so what we really want to try and do and what we're hoping to launch in February is a social regenerative project to work with farmers on the ground to teach them regenerative methods and a new way of farming. But also because we know the other piece of the puzzle is to offer them real value and incentive to do that and to offer them fair and secure wages and support and equipment and other areas like that. And We've had some uh, initial really positive conversations, but we're linking up with, um, we're, we're taking a kind of partner approach and linking up with a handful of restaurants in the UK who are championing food, uh, good food and change in food to have a direct relationship with them. And they'll know the field and the farmer they're working with and to create a system that values farmers values quality, uh, quality sorry, and values giving back to the planet and quality olive oil. Um, so that's really exciting. And, and we, we've started talking with a few farmers who are interested and we've started talking to a few exciting partners in the UK that's interested. And, and, and we feel that it's kind of this paradox, right? You have to farm better in order to produce value and get value but you have to provide value in order for people to want to uh, farm better and we're trying to connect those dots and give people an alternative and a platform um, to do something different that's amazing so what what would the i mean can you give us a sense of what the what are the kind of regenerative practices that you'll be encouraging farmers to work with yes uh, an additional point is actually a part of that project is also to support the 5% of organic farmers because we feel that right o- organic is not perfect and that's a whole rabbit hole to go down. But, but yeah, there are 5% of people here trying to do something different and you're only able to do something different if you can operate outside of the system. And so the more people and support we can give to the 5% also, the better. Um, so in terms of regenerative practices we're kind of i think we're kind of working on some idea of a roadmap and i think it's really important to understand that you can't pull the rug out and do everything in one year it just doesn't work nature works in cycles and evolutions and and we have to play to that so really the first step is moving away from uh industrial and chemical farming into um 
organic and having a baseline mm. of organic farming. And that means not using the heavy kind of pesticides and using the kaolin clay uh, instead of the kind of pesticides to kill fruit fly and, and to look at certain things like that. And then there's kind of the next stages as, as farmers progress throughout um, that process. Um, I think the biggest thing is a mindset change. One is to simply, you know, there are, and there are practices that are built on this perspective change. One is to simply understand that 20, you can only see 20% of the, fear, the, the important bit above the ground. Everyone's focused on the olive tree. But 80% of the goodness is beneath the ground and, and there's life there. And so part of it's educating and, and talking about the fact that this thing below our feet is the most important thing we have uh, as farmers and we need to cherish and rebuild and replenish it. And there's certain ways we do that. And then the other idea is we often talk about the fact we don't have 200 olive trees. We have two fields, and that means we have fields that are an ecosystem. So the birds matter, the bees matter, the insects matter, the, the eventually the cover crop and the diversity, the wildflowers that come in spring matter, the clover matter. It's about understanding, hang on a minute, it isn't trees equal olives. It's strong, resilient ecosystems allow us all to thrive and produce the best oil possible in the best possible way. So I think really it's a shift in that direction. Um, in, yeah, uh, no, I, I, yeah. Go sorry. No, no, I just, it's lovely. Just as you, I just, I just, just, it's my mind's just popping when you're talking about that, the, that, that relationship. Cause again, it makes me think of like, you know, again, how we apply that. It's the same as, you know, it's the same as, you know, good, healthy humans come from, <laughs> diverse communities that are healthy have different perspectives where there's all kinds of relationships going on you know so we can apply the same principles to to the sort of health of of humans do you know what i mean as as we can to the actual you know the, well i'm, I'm these, sure these, it's these, no these coincidence that a key you know that humans have a microbiome which is we're finding we barely understand and we're finding increasingly is so important to our health and the soil has a microbiome that we barely understand and we're figuring out is so crucial to soil health. <laughs> we are reflections yeah, of what, earth. Yeah. And it, it, it's funny because cult, cult, uh, I mean, I'm, I, 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 at the moment I'm exp exploring a lot, this kind of, you know, this sort of breakdown between sort of, you know, nature and culture right now. We've sort of, there's this sort of head on, we're meeting this kind of, there's this, it feels like that's the, that these are these, this time we're living in. It's kind of nature meets culture head on because we're seeing the impacts now of, you know, of, of, uh, of, of how our kind of modern cultures have, have been sort of treating the, the natural world. But also we're seeing the impact uh, of that in our cultures. I, I would say both are quite sick, you know, if you were looked at them, if you, you know, if you sort of, if you were sort of trying to medically diagnose mm. kind of modern human cultures in 2021, and you were looking also at the, the natural world that supports us, you, you would diagnose that both are critically ill, right? I mean, any, anyone sane <laughs> who looked at the evidence, um, uh, and so it's interesting. And obviously then, uh, you know, obviously then there's this, there's this other level, which you're speaking to, which is, you know, we're we're understanding through science now this this intimate relationship between soil health and and gut health. You know, and um, 
and the microbiome, which you know is, we're we're understanding more and more, is what is where health is really generated from in the human body, and you know what we're doing to the soils, we're doing to ourselves, you know, and uh, it, it's so interesting. I don't know what's been going on in the last few, quite a few last episodes on this podcast. Soil has been coming up um, for different reasons, you know, sometimes through farming, sometimes through our relationship, and it's making me think as you're speaking. It's this whole thing at the moment about billionaires going into space and uh it's, mm. it was something that um also that jay griffiths was speaking to about our relationship with soil as a cult as a modern culture you know she talked about like how we you know we've become to sort of worship and privilege what is above us and then mm. what is below us we tend to see as like meaningless useless almost and so it's almost like you know so we've treated soils like that we've we've lost we've lost our understanding of soils as the life force you know everything life is created in soils you know things mm. die in it and then life is reborn and it's also like the ocean i, I it's yeah. a, something i've you know i've done a lot of work over the years with our relationship with the ocean and it's the same thing because it's below often we see it as this kind of place that's just sort of you know you know enormous and distant and you know you can't really damage it but it's kind of a bit scary and it's a bit weird you know what i mean and yeah, so yeah. and we're fascinated we have this like like these billionaires going into space this sort of obsession with what's above and yet you know the ocean provides you know somewhere between 50 and 70 percent of the oxygen we breathe on land so you know ocean dies we die and the soil of course is the life force for for everything for us you know for us to survive and it's just weird how culturally mod again modern and predominantly western cultures have become so detached from what is below um sorry a bit of a ramble there but it's just bringing up these um, but even in language as well you know, I think about mm. how we almost objectify nature as if, as, and we talk about nature as if we're not part of it. Mm. We are not nature. We're all nature. We're all in a system together. We talk about, oh, you know, nature out there. I need to do, you know, and I'm guilty of it myself, but it's, we are nature. And soil and ocean are the two big uh, regulators of our planet. There's, you know, the fundamental to human life. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's, um, it's extraordinary. So, so, so how is that, how is that kind of this work with, with, with soil regeneration and starting to sort of, and how, how, how are the farmers and communities that you're working with? Cause it's interesting, you know, I guess again, and you have, you know, how is, how does that go down? How, what's the, is, is that level of, understanding of the soil health is that very salient amongst farmers or again has that been lost a little bit through these industrialized processes or well i think um there's this be- i'm it's a bit left field but there's this beautiful Sorry, thing about good. culture i think is grandpa this happens grandpa manoli was alive and he was growing crops in and around his olive trees He didn't call them cover crops. He didn't call it organic, but he needed crops to eat. And the system he was living in, in the small rural pockets, meant that he did that. Now we understand, for example, fermented foods are good for our microbiome and the the micro, you know, and our gut health. 
isn't it so wonderful that so many cultures created fermented foods without the knowledge that it was healthy, but ev- mm. so many disconnected cultures came to the same end of fermenting foods for uh, preserving, and then it was good for us. And before industrial agriculture came in, so many farmers were doing things that we're now implementing that are good for the land. There was no evidence that was needed. There was no reason or rhyme. It was just the natural progression of life intertwined with food and farming. I think that's so incredible and we forget that. Yeah, I 100%. And I guess that's, again, I mean, is this because of connection, right? I guess because we were, were so involved in the process of not just cultivating, but also noticing the impacts but then obviously you know how do you how do you store food how do you preserve things do you know what i mean how do you because you know i guess that's the thing you're, we're so connected in the in in those relationships they're very real to people but i guess this industrialization it removes so much it disconnects us from so much of those you know what i mean of those felt yeah. experiences and to, to have our to have the conversations with farmers, we, we're starting that process now, and and as I said, we we haven't really even announced about the project yet. So it's exciting to talk about it, and and we're at the very first steps of that. But really, in terms of the regenerative practices and having that conversation, that's where two fields is invaluable because we can't we don't have to just talk to people; we can show people. And we can show people, well, this is what's working for us. And this is how we're doing it. And this is how we're building a business for good. And this is how we're changing and redefining the value of farming and olive oil and what that means. And you now when we talk about soil health, a big practice of ours uh, and of kind of fundamental, the thing that got us down the rabbit hole, as it were, or down the wormhole, as it were, was uh, <laughs> a practice from Korean natural farming and Essentially, you can go to untouched areas of uh, land. So we have a natural water source up in the mountains where there's beautiful big trees and a natural riverbed. And uh, it would be exactly the same if you went to a forest, for example, where it's got nice organic leaf matter on the uh, forest floor. And you can dig under and you can smell and you can see that white mycelium and you can see all of that goodness. And um, you can actually go and it, to these un- untouched, beautiful, pure places. And you can take, uh, we use, a, you can basically replicate a Petri dish. So we use a wooden box with the rice as a food source. And you can put that under the, uh, the forest floor, just leaves on top. You don't have to dig in or anything. And what you can do is actually that attracts loads of beautiful white, uh, hyphae, fungal hyphae and mycelium and all that good life and then you have this um, this petri dish full of life and you can we go then take that away and we can produce this um, through lots of different ways one of the outcomes can be like a, a, a liquid compost and we can actually take that microbiology and we can reintroduce it into our soils in our fields um, and we can do that in a number of different ways. And one way is like connecting it to um, the uh, the pipes where we water and then we can water out microbes into our soils and, and lots of other ways. You can actually combine that with biochar, which we're experimenting with a bit at the moment. And, and what that means is you can actually bring life 
back into your field, which is so cool. And then the next, like it's, it's making me think. Yeah, it's a bit like it's a bit like a sort of um, start, you know, sourdough starter almost. Yes, like you're sort yeah, of yeah. Um, se- seeding it into a into an you know into the you know a, a, you're seeding that life into like when you make a levan for your your bake. You know what I mean? Yeah, and and you can actually go and you can take that and you can so you go through different processes where you can add sugar and then you kind of uh, it goes dormant and then uh, you use a special air pump to kind of wake up wake up the microbes again and then they're alive and you can take them in and and so Brilliant. a big part of uh and it's all it's all kind of this idea of anaerobic aerobic um starch sugars it's all you know it's based in science it's life it's it's, life. it's alive <laughs> and, <laughs> it's, and, it's, it's it's a living thing and it's so uh it's so amazing and and so what we do is is we kind of started our journey with two questions okay we're going to use this this process to reintroduce life into our fields. Question number two is, how do we create um, a system where life can thrive? Because there's no point introducing it if there's not a system that can thrive. And there's no point having a life to thrive if we can't build back our, our soils. And that is through kind of circular farming methods, for example. This is how, this is how uh, detached industrial farming or has come you could you prune the olive trees maybe once every two years and then you have all of this natural material and a lot of farmers here just burn it you're thinking hang on a minute you can we wood chip that uh, and then we combine it with we go to a natural we go to a, a shepherd here and we get natural uh, manure and then we have our compost it all compost it all and then we can apply compost we can have uh wood chips that we combine with the microbes we can have so like all of the things our, our fields produce we can keep in this cycle which is the natural put back cycle. into the system yeah yeah um so there's you know even simple things like utilizing the the things that your fields are giving you um so so those are some of the practices natural kind of natural uh, systems and uh, even things like we never use any heavy machinery, we hand pick everything. All of those kind of aspects as well. And then the next stage is that's pro- what. You, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go on, carry on. No, I was just saying what you're speaking to. Then again, though, that's this is this culture shift of you know where you know in nature there's no such thing as waste, right? Yes. But yet we again in mo- modern humans we see you know we've labelled all these things waste. So like you're talking about the branches, you know, you, you trim them and in the eye of the farmer it's i've got to get rid of these i'll burn them you know what i mean so and we see that we see that happening in culture everywhere in modern cultures whether it's materials packaging food whatever we we just you know we don't see we just see these stuff as weight we see okay i've finished with this now oh i need you know and of course there is no such thing as waste and it has to go somewhere and so this is again it's just sort of it's just this idea of like being you know it's observing and reflecting and looking at all these things and thinking well where, where you know what what's being called for with this stuff you know, like where where does where could th- where could this go next to keep that life again that's what you're speaking to this idea of it's keeping you know, how how do we keep regenerating how do we keep giving life versus taking it um it's fascinating what's the role of animals like within or what could be or what is the role of because you know chatting with andy about how he's been Andy Cater, how he's been, you know, bringing, you know, the role of the, you know, of cattle, of of the herd, mm. and mob grazing, and 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 stuff. And ha- does that show up in 
in what you're doing? And I guess it's goats and things, but how does that? Yeah, I mean, we're so we have, um, to be honest, our land and uh, climate is more similar to Africa than it is to England. It's so hot and dry here. Um, And so one of our biggest challenges is in the summer, there's exposed soil and it gets incredibly hot and dry and uh, there's no diversity. So that's the role of the cover crop, which you can go into more. But then once we've got the cover crop in, which we're hoping to do, we've done some experiments of a six seed mix, six mix seed cover crop. Um, And we're going to hopefully roll that out in February time, January, February. Um, Then the next thing is about animals, which we're going to try and do at the same time. And it's interesting because there's, I don't think there's, there's no kind of, cows as it were or anything like that that, mm. that would replicate the uh, the buffalo or the bison and roaming but what we do have we're thinking about goats but we're, we're, we're a bit worried goats are pretty crafty and can eat a lot of olives off an olive tree oh really <laughs> yeah. it's a little bit of a problem not, not ideal <laughs> um, so the next thing the big thing we're working on for that is chickens and having a I don't know if you've seen the tri- chicken tractors they're on wheels and you can oh. kind of replicate mob grazing through uh, essentially fencing off big areas of where chickens can go. And I know in uh, in ideal situations you'd have cow and cattle, but I know, especially in England, there's some of what my experience is and seeing and talking to people, often people have the, the cows or, or whatever go in and then the chickens will follow after. So uh, we're going to start with we're going to start with the chickens, and I think we're going to look to implement goats at some point. But but uh, we're going to start small and work our way up. I think with the animals. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But animals is you know, I, I think if you talk to most regenerative farmers who have been able to implement an animal relationship into their land, from my experience of reading and talking they would pinpoint that as one of the biggest game changers in their system. Um, yeah. and, and like I said, I think our priorities really go towards a cover crop to protect our soil and to bring diversity. And then next it's animals. And, and let's, let's talk about the cover crops. What, what, what will, how will that work? What will you be planting? Well, it's interesting. We're trying to figure that out at the moment. Um, there's, Peas and because one of the things is you have to figure out what actually grows in this climate. Yeah, right. And right. water is very precious, so we're also trying to build out a water kind of more advanced and bigger water collection system because we have about two months of rain in the and and we've had we've had droughts so bad that we have only been able to water our olive trees once every two months for a specific time period. And you get fined if you go over that fine time period, but it's all connected, right? Because, you know, guess what? Healthy soils retain more water. Mm. And, uh, and, and so if you have healthy soils, you can do more with less. Um, so it's all kind of connected. And when you see an infiltration rates, you can actually utilize it. If you see, if you see somewhere that's raining heavily and you see puddles on the ground, that's because that soil has a, it may be full, but it has a poor infiltration rate. It can't actually, there's not enough life in that soil to even utilize the water that it's getting. So if you imagine you have a soil that can't retain water, it's poor in, 
poor infiltration rate and it hardly rains so the soil can't maximize the small rain it does get that's a real <laughs> challenge mm. so part of the idea of the and and then you have soil compaction and other things which you can is uh, cover crop roots are really good at one of the things we learned is the conventional approach used to be and kind of is people the idea that if you planted six different varieties or even one different variety of crop in your fields there would be some sort of competition between the olive tree and the other things and your olive tree would suffer but actually of course we know now that together these things thrive and and so it's interesting even and you know especially in village life these nuggets these things kind of tend to stick these these wisdoms and some of them are are ancient and wise and other that others of them are are not quite so six seed there's going to be wheat pea bean um and there's a couple of others uh and we we've done a hundred we've done a small section of a hundred days and then a of growth and then cutting and letting that mulch down but mm. the absolute ideal would be year-round cover crop but you have to have the water to be able to do that and so yeah. we need to increase our capacity to collect water in uh, the winter to support that but you can't have it's really not great to have exposed soil to huge like hot temperatures mm. and and so the cover crop covers the soil adds diversity and is amazing for or for the kind of uh, soil root rhizosphere interactions and and and, and it actually made me think what I thought of when you were speaking earlier. It's like this idea of carbon and actually we're really good at re reducing things. And so we've reduced our understanding of carbon to be negative, but carbon is the basic and building blocks of life. It's not actually a negative thing. <laughs> Very rarely in, uh, in, in, in um, a natural system is something objectively negative or positive. It plays its role. And so actually storing carbon and having carbon in your soil is incredibly important. And of course, um, both the ocean and the soil are huge carbon sinks. And specifically, mm. I mean, my more expertise is in the soil, but huge amounts of carbon have been lost from the soil. So there's huge potential to store carbon in the soil. However, I will say that we will get, I believe, ourselves in trouble if we turn farming into a carbon storing exercise, because I believe that we can store carbon in the soil and it's really important. It's really important for farming. It's really important for the environment and the future. But I'm worried if we go down the route of, of only farming to store carbon, you know, and car and farming is a means to an end, we lose the holistic understanding of nature and we end up back in a reductionist system where we're only thinking about carbon storage to thrive we have to consider everything and we have to uh, understand the ecosystem in its entirety and and there is mm. carbon storage solutions in soil but the goal of farming should be to to regenerate land to produce nutrient dense crops and to have a thriving ecosystem the result is storing, car is storing carbon, and that's amazing. But, but once we kind of, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, 
aware of carbon credits and I think they could be, you know, potentially great and things could be great. I'm just aware of finding ourselves in another reductionist system which doesn't mm. actually appreciate land. So that's what regenerative is to me, going back to that very first question, is understanding land, nature and people in its entirety and providing a future which is positive and giving back to that kind of system. Love it. Love it. Um, listen, we're um, just, you know, folks that want to, how can folks get involved? Um, there's obviously different ways. I guess you've got, you've got people that can, you know, um, you know, connect into to, to the products that you're doing, but you've also obviously, like you say, you're trying to create these, this ecosystem of, of, of um, not just customers, but I guess restaurants and others. And what's, what's the best way for people to get involved in what you're doing? Uh, I think it, uh, for us, you know, uh, obviously something you become acutely aware of when you start businesses, you can't continue your business unless you generate and you can't continue to do good unless you generate money of which it can sustain you. So, of course, we are always very thankful for the response and the support of of two fields. And uh, and if, if there are restaurants who are interested in being part of a social change project, that would be incredible. But But beyond that, you touched on it briefly earlier, this idea of everything sustainable and nothing really is, and this idea of greenwashing. I think the most important pe- thing people can do is ask real questions and have real conversations. And that includes with the brands. I love it nothing. I love nothing more when we get kind of a really interested phone call or an email because, you know, we know, we, we've seen what happens to the word sustainable at one point, sustainable was a really genuine and uh, and fulfilling concept, right? And then we saw it become this avalanche of greenwashing. And let me be clear, there's some people, there are many, many, many people doing incredible work, including yourself and including all of the guests you've had on here, I'm sure. But there's also a lot of people who are greenwashing, and that's a real problem because they're not real solutions. And I fear that maybe one day that will happen to the word regenerative. So beyond words and beyond terminology is questions and understanding and transparency. And so, you know, we have to demand that from ourselves and we have to demand that from from the people we're supporting and the things that we're doing. Yeah, <clears throat> I love that. It's the inquiring mind uh, <laughs> that's needed um, and uh, keep... Uh, keep evolving our understanding of of these things um love that well look i think um what you guys are are doing is is amazing and um i wish you um well on your ongoing missions and journeys um and i will link out to the the projects and the work so people can find you um i always uh I always like to, you know, finish these conversations with the the metaphor of uh, of our of our of our Earth as a spaceship, um, and um, you know, this idea of of becoming crew on 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 our spaceship Earth. I guess what what does that you know does that what does that speak to you in terms of how you're seeing things? Uh, I think that. Uh, 
the biggest thing I've learned in doing everything and what that speaks to me is that uh, to make change involves people and that involves all of us. So, uh, you know, becoming crew is about looking after each other, working for each other and being together and creating a better future. And it's, it's, it's not two brothers and 200 olive trees. It's what that can go on to do and what that can provide. And I think we all have a role to play in that in some way. So I guess my evolution of that is I used to think that the trees were the most important thing in the world and they are, but it's meaningless without people and, and what we can do together. Beautiful. Thank you, Will, (laughs) for what you're doing. And uh, yeah, big, big, uh, big sort of energetic vibes to you and your brother and your extended family of all life out there. Um, And uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll be uh, cheering the mission on and spreading the good word of the two fields uh, mission. And um, yeah, look after yourselves. And uh, thank you very much for having me on. It was great to chat. Yeah, really good, man. Really good. I've just subscribed to the oil. <laughs> yes, I saw. I've, 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 I've had some, you know, obviously we've had some in the past, but I thought, you know what? It's lovely. And just be, yeah, love what you're doing. So, um, I appreciate yeah, looking that. forward to some more oregano when it pops up, mate. I'll tell you, that's gone down well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's uh, there's never enough. <laughs> yeah but you know that's that's it though isn't it that's the that's the thing isn't it we just have to sort of you know see these see these gifts as gifts and we can't we can't sort of um you know we have to yeah we have to just sort of indulge in them when when they're available but also recognize that they are they are gifts right exactly right then until next time look after yourself so I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Will Um, do check out Two Fields Zacros Um, order some product it's awesome Uh, and by doing that you're supporting um, the impacts the beautiful impacts they're making with their work in the communities. Uh, they're working with but also bringing back this beautiful more than human living world around what they're doing so yeah if you like this episode or any others please do give it a rating or a review and do share with someone else that might like it this really helps other people find the podcast Um, and thank you to all those who've been leaving reviews recently it's so good to hear your views of the shows Uh, You can sign up to our monthly newsletter, Becoming Crew. Um, But yeah, until next time, thanks for tuning in. It means a lot. Take care of yourselves. Look out for those around you. Keep connecting to the more than human world. Peace and out.